have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to take it and be finding your place in the book of Acts chapter 1, uh, the book of Acts chapter 1 and verse number 12. One of the questions that I've been asked the most as a pastor has often been this question, uh, how does a person really know the will of God for his or her life? I've had couples ask me that question, I've had uh, teenagers ask that question, how is it that you really know? How can you discern what God's will is for your life? You know, life is full of decisions. Some of those decisions are minor decisions. Other decisions are major decisions. And really, every phase of life has its own share of major decisions that you have to make. Uh, you think about when a person is young, they're often faced with major decisions, such as where am I going to go to college? What's going to be my major? Who am I going to marry? Um, when am I going to start a family? What type of career path, vocation am I going to choose for myself? And all of that. These are major decisions that we grapple with. Now, as believers, it really should be the desire of our heart to know the will of God in life's major decisions. Because, let's face it, uh, nothing is more important than knowing the will of God. Nothing is more important in your life right now than you, as a believer, living in the will of God. Uh, Dr. Adrian Rogers, the great pastor at Bellevue, Bellevue Baptist Church, uh, several years ago he wrote a book, and the book was titled, Ten Things That Every Christian Ought to Know. And one of the chapters in that book was a chapter on knowing the will of God. And in that chapter, he mentions at least six different myths that people often believe about the will of God. Uh, the first myth is what he calls the map myth. And the map myth is this idea that God's going to give you some kind of a road atlas for his will. But in reality, the will of God is not a road map. The will of God is a relationship. And... Uh, God often doesn't let us know ahead of time whenever we're going to encounter a bend in the road in life. So again, the will of God, it's not necessarily a map. Another myth is the misery myth. And those who believe this myth believe that God's will is miserable, that it's always painful, as if God were some kind of cosmic killjoy. And those who believe this myth are under the impression that God uh, only wants pain and misery for their life, and so they never surrender to do the will of God in life. And the thing is, the truth is, God is a loving Father, and He wants for us what we would want for ourselves if we had enough sense to want it. So the map myth, the misery myth, then there's the missionary myth. It's this idea that the will of God only pertains to a certain select special class of Christians, and only pastors and missionaries and that kind of thing are called by God, when in reality, the will of God involves every single child of God. And then there's the miracle myth. It's the idea that a person has to experience something very dramatic before they can really know the will of God. There has to be some kind of sign, you know, like some type of morning message that's spelled out in my morning bowl of Cheerios telling me what I'm going to encounter and do that particular day. So knowing the will of God, it's often not 
God's speaking through these miraculous events in life, but through the still, small voice of daily living. Isn't that what he did with the prophet Elijah? God revealed his will to Elijah, not, not through the wind, through the fire, through the earthquake, but through a still, small voice. And that still, small voice often comes through just daily life. A lot of people are under the impression that they've missed it. There's the missed it myth. Well, I've missed the will of God for my life. That's true. You can make decisions early in life that affect you later on in life. But let me tell you something. Aren't you glad that God is a God of second chances? As long as you have breath in your lungs, my friend, as a believer, you can be in the will of God in life. Uh, Even still, there's a mystery myth. The mystery myth says, well, the will of God is mysterious. It's like some kind of Easter egg hunt. And the only way that you can really find it out, God is reluctant to reveal it. You've just got to search for it and search for it some more. Folks, nothing is more important in life than us knowing and doing the will of God. And the will of God is not a complicated thing. It's not as complicated as we often make it out to be. Now, that doesn't mean that it's going to be an easy thing, but it's not a complicated thing. If you want to know the will of God and be in the will of God as a believer, then the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at here in Acts chapter 1, I believe there's some critical keys as far as the will of God is concerned right here in this passage. So if you've got your Bible there, Acts chapter 1, verse number 12, let me invite you to stand with me as we read this passage of Scripture together. In this passage, the Bible says that the disciples returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which was near Jerusalem, about a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying. And there was Peter and John and James, Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. And all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. By the way, I could just preach a sermon right there from just 14 alone. They were all with one accord devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now Luke is going to clue us in on something that happened uh, as far as the reader. He says, now this man, referring to Judas Iscariot, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. And that's one of the grossest verses in the entire New Testament. (laughs) But it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama. And that's Aramaic, and it means field of blood. For it's written in the book of Psalms, and this is Peter here. He's reaching back into the Old Testament and seeing how all of this was prophetic fulfillment May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. And so one of the men who've accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us 
beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And so they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias, and they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go into his own place. They cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. From this passage of Scripture, I want to show you some keys to knowing God's will, finding God's will. So, Lord, may you speak into our hearts and lives. We thank you for your word, and I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as far as context is concerned, within this passage of Scripture, the disciples returned to Jerusalem after having witnessed the Lord's ascension into heaven. And the Bible says that they enter into the upper room where they've been meeting to pray and wait. And Luke will mention these disciples by name, as well as the fact that they're joined by several others. And yet, this passage reveals that the disciples are faced with a critical decision that requires prayer and the leadership of Almighty God. And you might could say that this decision serves as the first major event that the fledgling group of believers will face, and yet many more will be on the way. In fact, we frequently find the church in the book of Acts having to make major decisions, decisions in which they need to know the will of God on the matter. And so for that reason, I really believe that this passage teaches us much about discerning the will of God for our lives. And in this text, I want to show you four keys that are involved if you as a Christian really want to know the will of God in life. So key number one, notice with me, it involves community. The first key involves community. And the principle is God places us into his family. Did you know that when you got saved, God placed you into the body of Christ? You've been formed for family. The New Testament knows, knows nothing of this isolationist Christian approach. There are no isolated Christians. You see believers in the New Testament who are in close community with one another. And so notice here in chapter 1 how emphasis is placed on the fact that the disciples are gathering together. Uh, they're meeting with one another. Some have suggested that the book of Acts is very similar to the book of Joshua in the Old Testament because it's a bridge book. Uh, Acts is a bridge book between the Gospels and the Epistles, just like the book of Joshua sort of bridges the period between Israel's wilderness wanderings and the time of settling down in the Promised Land. Now, you know in the book of Joshua, when the Israelites cross the Jordan River, and they're there in the promised land, you would think that the first thing that they were to do was to charge those fortified cities and take the land. But before they do any of that, as soon as they cross Jordan, God tells his people, he says, listen, just park it for a while. Uh, wait for a while. Consecrate yourselves. Well, it's interesting to me that in the book of Acts, the same thing sort of happens. 
the disciples are given the great commission of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, but the last thing that Jesus tells them to do is to wait there in Jerusalem for a period of time until the Spirit of God would come and empower them for the mission. So instead of moving out immediately into the world, we find these disciples waiting together over a 10-day period in which several important things needed to happen first. One of the themes that we will read about over again and over again in the book of Acts is these believers who were living together in close covenant community. Uh, the church is a, an assembly of redeemed men and women who are living under the lordship of Jesus Christ. They're not in isolation from others, but they're yoked up together. And it all begins with just a few men and women who are mentioned there in chapter number one. Well, as far as the community is concerned, what type of community are they? Well, the text reveals that they're a diligent community. Verse 12 begins by saying that they returned to Jerusalem. In other words, they were obedient to do what Jesus told them to do. They had been out on the Mount of Olives where the Lord had visibly ascended, and um, they went back into the city. They come into the upper room. Maybe it was the same room uh, that Jesus had had the last supper with his disciples and the same room where uh, the resurrected Jesus had appeared to his disciples behind closed doors. But together they meet, and they're waiting for further instruction. And so waiting, they're simply being obedient to do what God told them to do. It's important that they wait. They want to know the will of God. They need to wait on the Lord. Now, I don't have to really tease this out because you and I are both wired this way, but I think, we're, listen, we're people of action, aren't we? None of us want to wait for anything. You, you go through the drive through and you're waiting more than three or four minutes before someone takes your order. You're ready to go to the next restaurant. We don't like to wait. Nothing is more problematic to us than this idea of being delayed. And often we have seasons in life where we feel like we're in the waiting room for whatever reason. And sometimes when we're waiting, uh, we, we want we want to do something, we want God to do something, we want him to come through in some matter. Maybe even we wonder if we've missed his will in a particular matter. It may not be that you've missed his will, it may just be that he's put you in the waiting room. You study your Bible and you'll discover that every servant of God that God uses, God always puts them in the waiting room of life first. You think about Abraham and Sarah, God had promised that they would have a son. Well, it's years before that promise is actualized. Uh, Joseph, Joseph spent years in prison for something he didn't do, and yet that prison served as a waiting room whereby God was preparing him for the next phase of his life. Uh, David, David waited a decade and a half. Even though he had been anointed as Israel's king, he waited before he ascended the throne. Even the life of Jesus. Jesus begins his public ministry at 30 years of age. And we really don't know anything about those first 30 years of his life as he himself is even in the waiting room simply being obedient to his heavenly father. Waiting is not an easy thing to do, but it's an extremely important thing to do in seeking to know the will of God. And yet these disciples here, they're not being passive um, while they're waiting, they're not doing what they want to do. 
they're simply waiting for further instruction. And the Bible says that they're praying together. They're obeying the last thing that Jesus told them to do. Listen, in seeking to know the will of God in life, before you're often given any direction about decisions that you're often faced with, you need to realize that it really begins with being obedient to the things that you've already been told to do. While you're waiting upon some decision in life, waiting for God to lead you, let me ask you this question. Are you being obedient to the last thing he told you? Because why should we ever think that he'll give us any further insight if I'm not being obedient to what he's already told me to do in his word? And so this is a diligent community. Something else to pay attention to here in the text, this is a diverse community. You read the names of those disciples who are mentioned there in verse number 13, 11 names. But listen, these men come from a very diverse group, a diverse background. I mean, you've got guys who come from different backgrounds, like fishing backgrounds, tradesmen backgrounds. One even worked for the IRS. One was a tax collector. And then you had another who had been a political activist. By the way, think about how diverse this group of guys are. Here you have Matthew who worked for the Roman government. And then you have Simon the Zealot who belonged to a a faction that wanted to overthrow the Roman government. And yet both of these guys are together in the same group. What in the world is it that bound them together? Listen to me. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was the resurrection of Jesus that served as the basis of their fellowship. Not their political stripe. Not their color. Not their background as far as vocation and that kind of thing. It's the the resurrection of Jesus. It's the gospel. It's the lordship of Jesus Christ that brings this community together. And then add to this the fact that the Bible says the women were there with them. Including Mary, the mother of Jesus. Did you know that both in his gospel and in the book of Acts, Luke is careful to give prominence to women, which is a remarkable thing. Nothing has done more to elevate the status of women, ladies, than New Testament Christianity. Here you have men and women who are forming together the nucleus of this new community known as the church. And it's a miraculous thing. Luke also mentions the fact that the Lord's half-brothers were even there. Did you know that really up until the crucifixion, they didn't even believe in him? We know that he had at least four half-brothers. They had the same mother, not the same father. Uh, God the Father was the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but he had other half-brothers. Joseph and Mary had other children. John 7, 5 says that even his brothers didn't believe him, and yet here, they're there in this this community known as the church. What is it that led to the change? I'll tell you what it was. It was meeting the risen Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul says that the Lord personally appeared to James, his half-brother. And James, no doubt, becomes an evangelist for the other brothers. And so they're in this number as well. So you've got a diligent community. You've got a diverse community. And then notice they're a devoted community. The text says that they're devoted to one another. Verse 14 says, all of these with one accord were devoted, uh, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women. Literally, in the original Greek text, it reads in this way, with one accord they were continually devoting themselves together. 
Uh, the way that the language is structured, uh, it's known as um, uh, periphrasis, which is simply a stylistic device that's defined as the use of excessive words to convey a meaning that could have been said in fewer words. You say, oh, like your sermons, right? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. But the point is Luke, is, Luke is making this point that it's a miraculous thing that such a diverse group of people are bound together supernaturally. They're, they're together, and they're devoted, and they're devoting themselves to prayer. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do this. And you say, well, what's this got to do with the will of God? Listen to me. This group is going to be faced with a major decision, and they're together on the matter. In, in seeking to know and do the will of God in your life, listen to me, it's important that you're involved in Christian community. It's important that you are in close fellowship with other brothers and sisters. If you want to know the will of God in your life and do the will of God, you need to know that the will of God involves you being involved in the family. And I can't tell you how many times I've been faced with various decisions to make in life. I'm so glad that God saved me and placed me into a family where I could go to some mature saints of God who've walked with God down through the years who may be able to have something to say about the matter or the decision that I've got to make. Don't make the will of God a complicated thing. You make it a complicated thing when you reject the family dynamic. So maybe some application for you this morning, some takeaways from this sermon. If you're not involved in a Sunday school class, you better find one. Start one. Get a group of people together that, that you can come together, you can be in close, tight-knit fellowship. Because if you want to know the will of God, it involves community. Now there's a second key to knowing the will of God. Not only does it involve community, but secondly, notice that it involves prayer. The second critical key is prayer. And the principle is that God hears us when we call on his name. And aren't you grateful for that? Aren't you grateful that through Jesus Christ and all that he's accomplished, you can come boldly before the throne of grace in a time of need? You can have one-on-one -on -one audience with the King of Kings himself Verse 14 says, all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together. Verse 24 says, and they prayed. And prayer is one of those things, I think, that's often more praised than it is practiced. The early church didn't merely praise prayer. Uh, they practiced prayer. Everywhere we find the church meeting together, we see them praying. Sometimes I wonder if our prayer life is tepid because we have so much other stuff that we fall back on, so much so that prayer becomes sort of a spare tire to us rather than the steering wheel. The early church, they didn't have anything to fall back on. No resources. They had prayer and they had one another and they had the gospel and they recognized that before any major decision had to be made, they had to pray. And so notice a couple of things about their praying. Notice that it's corporate prayer that we find here in this text. Verse 14 says, with one accord, they were devoting themselves to prayer. By the way, I'm grateful for private prayer. I'm grateful that I can go into my prayer closet and have personal communion with the God of heaven. But some of the richest times of prayer in my life have been in close fellowship with other brothers and sisters as we were praying together over a given matter. That word one accord there, um, 
we find this mentioned by Luke multiple times in the book of Acts, but it's a Greek adverb, and, and the word is homothumidon. That's the word. And, and literally, the word means one breath. Uh, Thayer's Greek lexicon says that it really comes from two compound words, uh, meaning to rush along and in unison. And, and, and the idea is, the image is it's, it's musical. You think about the orchestra, our orchestra when they play, you've got different instruments, all of which require breath. You know, somebody's got to blow into those horns in order to get those things to make the sounds that they make. But think about how varied an orchestra is. You know, you've got, you've got woodwinds, brass instruments, you've got, you know, clarinets and flutes and French horns and trumpets and trombones and kazoos and all of that. And they all play and sound differently. They have to follow the same piece. Oftentimes, they're playing different notes to bring together just this wonderful harmony that just sounds so wonderful. But if you take the instruments away and the people were just up here on the platform doing what they do, you would hear them doing this. You just hear the breath. You take away the breath, you don't have the music. That's the idea behind this word, homothumidon. One breath the church is unified, one breath. Listen, we know that at Pentecost, the Spirit of God, the breath of God came to indwell the people of God. And it's a miraculous thing that the church is said to be in one accord, unified. You got different people from different backgrounds, but they're, they're together in one accord. And corporately, they're lifting up their voice in prayer. If I want to know the will of God in my life, I know of no more important thing that I could do than to ask another believer to join me in united prayer over a particular matter. Some of you are facing some decisions in life that are difficult. Don't deal with that by yourself. Find a trusted brother or sister that you can say, hey, would you pray with me? Help me pray about that. Pray together. Did you know what Jesus had to say about that kind of thing in Matthew chapter 18? He said, I say unto you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Amen. Prayer is absolutely critical to knowing the will of God. Corporate prayer. And then notice it's consistent prayer. You pay close attention to the language of verse 14. You come away with this understanding that the disciples are being consistent in prayer. And they're consistently praying. During this 10-day period of time in between the Ascension and, and Pentecost, these disciples are waiting patiently in persistent, consistent prayer. No doubt they're praying for direction. No doubt they're praying as a means of worship and fellowship with God. No doubt they're praying as a means of confessing sin and giving thanks to God for all that he had accomplished. One person has said that maybe they were praying something along these lines. Lord, prepare us for what lies ahead. Enable us to carry out this mission that you've given to us. Show us what are our next steps. And this is going to become a pattern that we see repeated all throughout the book of Acts. Before any progress is made, the church bathes its mission and its ministry in prayer. So you want to know the will of God, it involves community. That's the first key. Prayer is the second key. Let me give you a third key. The third key is Scripture. The Word of God. 
And the principle is that God speaks as we read his word. The primary place that you can find God's will is right here in the pages of the Bible. The will of God is revealed in the word of God, and that's where we've always got to begin, folks. One person has said this, a lot of Christians spend inordinate amounts of time and energy trying to find out God's concealed will while ignoring so much of his revealed will. Doesn't it make sense that he would want us to give first priority and attention to the stuff that he's already revealed in the pages of Scripture? Why should he tell us where we should go to college or who we're supposed to marry if we're not at all interested in making disciples? If we're not at all interested in living holy lives? If we're not at all interested in linking up arm in arm with other believers and being a part of the family of God, then why in the world do we assume that God will give us any insight into his concealed will when we're not even obedient to his revealed will? And so this is something that we see Peter doing here, uh, here in chapter 1. Uh, his leadership illustrates the way that scriptures should be handled uh, as, you, as you want to be in the will of God. He's prompted by what he knew the Bible to say. He quotes from Psalm 69. He quotes from Psalm 109. He interprets that passage in light of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. He's motivated, led by Scripture. And that's the way that it always works with the will of God. So because he knew the Scriptures, because Jesus had opened up his mind to understand the Scriptures, Peter knew that the group had a decision to make as it pertained to replacing Judas Iscariot. He has, he has something to say here about the inspiration of Scripture itself. This is one of the clearest passages in all of Scripture where you find the doctrine of inspiration clearly uh, explained. There in verse 16, he, he quotes from the Old Testament, and he says, listen, David spoke, but it wasn't David. It was the Holy Spirit speaking through David, inspiring David to write what he wrote in Psalm 69 and 109. Someone said this, if you want to hear God speak, read his word. If you want to hear him speak audibly, then read the Bible out loud. God speaks through his word. He's spoken to humanity. He's revealed his word. He's given it to us right here in Scripture. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean that as I magically open up my Bible, I can expect an easy answer for every decision that I'm faced with in life. Um, it doesn't imply that I'm to approach God's word like some kind of good luck charm. You ever done this? I know you've done this. Let's just be honest with each other this morning, okay? You've taken your Bible. You've had a major decision that you need to make in life. Not, you've not known which way to go. So you take the Scripture and say, Lord, I'm just going to open your Word, and the first verse that my eyes lay upon, I'm just going to trust that you're going to speak and tell me what to do. You ever done that? Yeah, don't you be shy. I've done that, and I know you've done that too. We approach God's Word often like it's this kind of magic eight ball that we shake expecting a yes or a no. That's not what I'm saying here. But as a principle, the Word of God has something to say by way of insight into every situation that I will ever find myself. And as a believer, you've been given the mind of Christ through the Spirit of God, and He has promised to guide you. Did you know that the author of this book has taken up residence in your heart and life as a believer? Amen. Which, by the way, the author of the book will never lead you to do something that's contrary to the book. The will of God for your life will never involve you abandoning your spouse for someone else. 
The will of God for your life will never involve you clearly disregarding and disobeying what the Word of God has to say about a given subject. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've heard professing Christians say something along these lines. Well, I just realized that this person was really the will of God for me, even though they were married to someone else at the same time. That's never the will of God for your life. Well, I've got peace in the decision. That's never a good indicator either. The Bible says Jonah was able to go to sleep in the belly of that ship as he was clearly out of the will of God. Just because you think you've got peace over a given issue doesn't necessarily mean that that's the will of God for your life. But you trust God in His Word, and you're obedient to what God's Word says, and you take your personal sanctification seriously as a Christian, then listen, you can trust God to give you further guidance in the decisions that you face in life. And so that's what's happening here. And, and Peter is prompted that they've got to make this decision about replacing Judas. And this is a major decision. They want to be in the will of God for the matter. It's a serious thing. And so the community is together. They're praying. They're searching the scriptures. And all of these are keys that are absolutely critical to doing the will of God. I've got more I could say about that, but let me just move on and give you one final key. A fourth key to knowing and doing the will of God is faith. Faith. And the principle is that God guides us as we make decisions. As I've been in close community with brothers and sisters in the faith, as I'm praying through issues, even praying together with other brothers and sisters through issues, as I've been in the scriptures, which by the way, don't wait. Don't wait until you find yourself in a crisis before you become a person of the word. Amen. Become a person of the word now. Because I can guarantee you that a time of crisis is going to come at some point. It could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be next week. But don't wait until it happens before you turn to Scripture. Begin practicing the daily habit of reading God's Word and meditating on God's Word. Praying together and living in community with other believers. But whenever the decision comes, you have to make a decision you have to understand that faith is involved here. You have to trust that God is going to guide you as you make the decision. After you've sought counsel from others, after you've bathed the matter in prayer, after you've searched the mind of God in the Word of God, the time has to come for a decision to be made. That's what these disciples are doing here about this issue of replacing Judas Iscariot. But they're trusting God to guide the process. Notice they understand something about God's sovereignty. Having prayerfully made their selections and went through apostolic qualifications, they come up with these two names. You've got Barsabbas and Matthias. Both of these men met qualification. Both of these men were no doubt great candidates, but only one of these men could fill the vacancy left by Judas. And so they pray. They trust the sovereign guiding hand of God in the matter. Since he alone knows the hearts of all, they trust him to show which one of these men that he had chosen. So you've got God's sovereignty. At the same time, though, you've got man's responsibility in this passage because they've got to make a decision, don't they? Verse 26 says that they cast lots for the decision. And the lot fell on Matthias. Now listen, this is not a proof text for you to take your paycheck this week to Harris. You hear me? 
basically what they're doing here, they're probably, they probably wrote the names of these two guys on a particular stone, put those two stones in a bag, shook up the bag, praying at the same time, reach into the bag and grab a stone. And the stone that they chose had Matthias's name written on it. Now, this was something that was not out of the way. This was an Old Testament practice. You read about it in Leviticus chapter 16. Proverbs 16.33 said, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So they're trusting God to guide through this process, and Matthias is the one who's chosen. I've heard some preachers say that the disciples really are being disobedient here by doing this because the apostle that God had chosen all along was, was the apostle Paul. There's no basis for someone to say that. I believe that these disciples are in keeping with the will of God. They know on the basis of Scripture and the leadership of God that they've got to find someone to replace Judas because it was imperative that there be 12 apostolic witnesses to Israel. Now, Paul's going to come along, and he's also going to be an apostle, but, but he's going to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So I don't believe that they're out of the will of God by doing this. I think that they're in the will of God by doing this. And in so doing, they provide us with some wonderful tools, some keys here to knowing and doing the will of God in our personal lives. You want to know the will of God for your life? Let's just be honest. All of us do. You may feel absolutely overwhelmed by the thought of that. Uh, but you can be encouraged by the fact that the men and women in this passage of Scripture were men and women just like us. Broken people, imperfect people, weak people, but they're people who trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're faced with a decision, but listen, faith, faith means that you've got to make the decision. And you don't put your faith in the process itself. Their faith is not in the process of casting lots. Their faith, faith is in the God who's in control of everything. The same thing's true for your life. You see, the thing is, God did something even better for you. You don't have to reach into a bag of of, of lots to find the will of God for your life, the Spirit of God has come to live in you as a believer. And as you are living in close fellowship with other believers, as you're praying, as you're spending sufficient time in God's Word, when you make decisions, having sought counsel, having sought the Scriptures, having sought the mind of God, then listen, make the decision. Roll the dice and expect God to guide you in the process.